You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 20th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Perry DeAngelis. Hello. Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And Jay Novella. Good evening. Uh, Rebecca Watson has the evening off, so she's not with us today. Guys, night out! She will be back next week. We have an, a, uh, an interview coming up with Orac, the skeptical blogger. And uh, it's, a, it's a long interview, so we're going to keep the news and emails a little bit short this week. Uh, the first news item has to do with black holes possibly not existing. Bob, why don't you tell us about this item? Yeah, this one was uh, quite a shocker, if it's true. I'm shocked. According, according to an article accepted for publication by Physical Review D, black holes as we, as we know them do not exist. This is the startling conclusion reached by Case Western Reserve University physicist Tenmay Vakaspati, Dejan Stokovic, and Lawrence Krauss, uh, who ha- also happens to be the author of The Physics of Star Trek. Specifically, they claim that collapsing stars never form an event horizon, the theorized area around a black hole that nothing, not even light, can escape from. Uh, Therefore, once anything crosses that boundary, there's no coming out. Now, the problem this conclusion resolves is called the information loss paradox. The rules of quantum mechanics forbid the destruction of information. But if nothing can escape the event, the event horizon of a black hole, then say a terabyte hard drive uh, with tons of information on it thrown in is irretrievably gone. So, so who's right? That's been a longstanding paradox that people have been trying to resolve. Some scientists have argued that Hawking radiation somehow encodes the information as it slowly leaks out of the black hole. Now, remember I covered Hawking radiation last week where uh, particle and particle and antiparticle pairs form just outside the event horizon. One is one is sucked into the black hole and the other one escapes. So you appear to see uh, radiation leaking out of the black hole. Some physicists say that the, uh, the this information loss is somehow encoded in this Hawking radiation. But according to these scientists, the event horizon itself never forms. They spent a year uh, working on calculations on trying to ter- trying to determine what exactly happens during uh, a stellar collapse. Their calculations seem to show that as big stars collapse, the gravity of the collapse somehow disrupts the quantum vacuum, creating what they call pre-Hawking radiation, which causes the hole to lose mass and never form an event horizon in the first place. If no horizon is formed, then information is never totally lost. The pre-Hawking radiation is, is non-thermal and can therefore encode information which can then be reconstructed far from the black hole, the black star, as they call it. Stars only begin the process of forming a black, a black hole but never get there is, is kind of what they're saying. Now, some physicists disagree, uh, notably Nobel laureate Gerard de Hooft of uh, Utrecht University in the Netherlands. He says, I strongly disagree. The process he describes or that the scientists described, can in no way produce enough radiation to make a black hole disappear as quickly as uh, they are suggesting. The horizon forms long before, long before the hole can evaporate. So, so we'll see. If, that, if they are indeed true, that will be quite... Um, quite a change. Well, how do you test it? How, how do you test that? 
Does it say? I mean, it, it sounds like the basis is, is, is theoretical. It's just a different way of explaining, just modeling what what should happen. And I guess that would right. be the key is to figure out a, a way to distinguish between a black hole and a black star. And so you can make some observation. So there's got to be some observational prediction, but I don't know if the article covered that or if they or if it made a prediction. No, the, the articles I read didn't cover that. Um, I suppose it's possible. Yeah. I mean, they they are claiming that this um, this pre-Hawking radiation. So is the key difference that they the uh, what's left behind does not have enough mass to form a black hole because enough right. mass was radiated away with this pre-Hawking radiation. Exactly. That's it. It's the pre-Hawking radiation is radiating away so much energy, which is equivalent to mass, that it never quite reaches the mass required to form an event horizon. But don't, but don't we know that black... What about supermassive black holes? I mean, don't they have way more times the mass than would be necessary to form an event horizon? Yeah, that's, they, they kind of treated them as, as a different beast. Because that's not one star. One star did not collapse and form a supermassive black hole. Where, whereas uh, other black holes from just a collapsing star... They claim could not could not form a conventional black hole with an event horizon, but that yeah that that was kind of hard to understand how they how they reconcile the supermassive black holes with this because clearly uh, there's plenty of mass there and the, and it's detectable mass and there's no you know pre-Hawking radiation that's preventing it from uh, from uh, from reaching the mass required to form uh, yeah. and density required to re- to form an event horizon. So they're, that's kind of a different. Uh, they they somehow they. They treat that as a different class that uh, that somehow makes them distinct enough. Where I mean, so why isn't there this information loss problem with these supermassive black holes? I that that I didn't get, and I couldn't find any anybody to to specifically address yeah. that in any of the articles I read. I, I wonder what Stephen Hawking has to say about all this. Yeah, I'm sure. He'll, yeah, he'll no, make his I haven't found anything. So because this is really his his specialty is this whole information black hole thing. Right, and of course Hawking radiation he he came up with and that, right just open up a whole can of worms because because the Hawking radiation is thermal you know it's it's, it's thermal radiation so you there's no information encoded in that and that kind of kind of exacerbated the whole information loss idea but right. uh, we'll see what happens as, as this develops yeah it's interesting it's basically an alternate hypothesis that is consistent with the data we have um, and right and solves a problem but uh, we'll see how it pans out it'd be interesting yeah maybe we'll report on this in the future if we get some more developments and more you know something to elucidate these ideas further. Another news item, just a quick follow-up on the stem cell debate that has been going on for, for several years now. The, uh, the, the Senate in the United States is you know, trying to pass yet another measure to help fund and regulate um, embryonic stem cell research, but uh, President Bush promises to veto the, their bill. So it, it looks like we're not going to get any, uh. any embryonic stem cell funding during this I thought we put this to uh, bed a few weeks ago Steve with the discovery of the stem cells from skin cells and so well, forth. Well the jury's still out on the the effectiveness of 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 those stem cells if it works out great but you know there's a lot a lot of those experiments turn into uh, tumors and cancer and so that the jury's still out on that you can't just you know bet everything on uh on this potential new this potential new idea that may or may not pan out. Yeah, it's true. If that pans out, and I do think eventually we'll have stem cells that do everything we need stem cells to do that we can get from sources other than embryos. But there's there's two things to know. Is one is we don't have them yet, and, and we don't know how long it's going to take for for that technology to pan out. And right. two is that the research that we're doing to develop these alternatives, a, a lot of them 
are dependent upon having embryonic stem cells as part of the research. So in order to get there, ironically, we need sort of embryonic stem cells in order to make us free of them. Or at least it will, it will slow down that research if, if we don't have the embryonic stem cell lines to, to, to utilize in the research. This whole stem cell debacle is such a low point for the president. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's yeah. just terrible. Well, I heard I mean, him interview you know, today. It's indefensible. He said, uh, I heard him, to, when he, I guess when he uh, publicly announced his decision, he said, uh, oh, it'll be good for us to, uh, along the lines of no one is going to be harmed with the collection of stem cells, as if embryonic stem cells actually harmed anybody. Yeah. Which means he still doesn't get it. He's saying federal money will not be spent to destroy an embryo, basically. But so, so he'll leave them. He'll let them be thrown in the garbage, though. Yeah, but fertility clinics, that's, what he says shouldn't happen is what is happening in fertility clinics. Why isn't he making laws against that, he, then? He's not making us think about that because you're, you're not going to take fertility clinics away from people. That would be politically untenable. He's just sort of pretending that that whole hypocrisy right. is not there. Basically, yeah. This is just almost politically untenable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, right. I have a feeling this right. problem will resolve itself in two thousand nine. <laughs> <laughs> we just gotta hang tight around, hang around, tight right. for, around January twentieth. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, we just gotta hang tight for another eighteen months, and I think we'll be all set with this one. But what is it? I'd like to know honestly how the religion affects this decision. How does his faith affect this? What, what's where's the connection there? The, the belief that life begins at conception. Right. And he thinks that any destruction of an embryo is murder, and utilizing products from that murder, no matter what the benefit, is immoral. But what about the fact that they get em the embryonic tissue from afterbirth of normal babies? Well, that's fetal, that's fetal, not embryonic, Jay. Right. They're not as pluripotent. But he doesn't even want that. He doesn't even want that, though, if, if I'm correct. No, he, no, no, it's just no. embryonic stem cells, not other sources of stem cells. That's the problem. But, of course, embryonic stem cells are the best. You know, they're the ones that have the most potential. Uh, I think what it is is um, the pro-life movement wants to draw a sharp line at conception. And they, they, right. they want that to be their line in the sand. And they make basically a slippery slope argument that if they yield on that line, then that leads to murdering babies, basically. So... An embryo is post-conception. It's a it's a human being. It's it's over the line. They want to hold a line there. That's what it comes down to. Steve, is there a scientific consensus as to when life begins? When life begins, mm -hmm. or when does an embryo become a person? The argument of con the argument of life at conception. Yeah, it's not. It's not the question. It's just it's just the way you're stating. It. I don't think it's when does life begin. It's when, when does that human, become a person? Human when life. Become, oh, yeah, when does it become being. a human person, as opposed to just an extension of the mother? Okay, fair or enough. Or whatever. So, is and, there a consensus on that? No, no, no it's because fuzzy, it's it's fuzzy. not a scientific question. I mean, there's, there's, it's not answerable. Right. It's a continuum, and there's no there's no way to there's no objective place to draw a line. But the Supreme Court has drawn a line after the second trimester, haven't they? Yes, that's a, that's a ethical or political line. It's not, but it's not based on science. Well, it's a legal line. Le legal, yeah, but it's it's a legal line that they that they drew. And yes. you're right; it was arbitrary. But it was. you you can say you can say things like when is there a nervous system? When can you know? When can the, you know? When does the brain reach sufficient development? When can pain be sensed? You could you could draw other lines that that clearly makes a human you know from a from a non-human. Uh, yeah, but but but, but putting meaning on those lines is what's arbitrary. What do those what do those biological milestones 
mean in terms of the ethical question of is it is it a is it a person or not? Science does not dictate at all when a person begins and these where are one deep, ends. complicated questions. <laughs> look at I'm serious. Look at an anencephalic baby. Right. That's right. a tragic occurrence, right? All right. Well, is that a human being? This is a this is a body with no effectively yeah. no brain. Yeah, yeah. No brain. Right. right. Yeah. Has a stem, but no brain. It's a lizard, basically. Yeah. Is that a person? <laughs> no. Know. You know what I, I mean? Think so, no. You say no, and yet there are parents out there of anencephalic children who, you know, help them to survive as long as possible. I believe their survival rate doesn't go beyond a few years. Is that correct, Steve? I think it's even less than that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, who will claim that every moment the child was with them was a joy and just as fulfilling as their other normal children? You know, I mean, it's very. Very difficult questions. Yes, there are emotions, ethics, morals involved, and those are not amenable to objective scientific answers. That, and that, that's probably why this has been such an enduring um, controversy. There, there is no ultimate solution to it. There are, more, there are cho- moral choices involved. So we're certainly not going to solve this problem. The next news item, Perry, you sent this one to me. This ha- has to do with towns using le- local legends in order to boost their tourism yeah, this was a, a pretty simple piece. There, uh, recently here in the U.S., down in Florida, there's been these <clears throat> cases of a couple of leaping sturgeons, which are very sizable fish. They can grow to a couple hundred pounds and, I guess, six to eight feet. And uh, an incident in April, and again an incident in June, uh, these sturgeons leapt up and out of the water to such an extent that they knocked people unconscious. Back in April, the woman actually lost some fingers, and oh my God. they had to be re- they had to be they had to be reattached. Wow. That's one hell of a leap. Yeah. What, do they, what do they have? Freaking Ginsu knives attached to their backs? What's happening? Actually, their their scales are like armor. You know, they're sort of prehistoric looking. You know, they're pretty neat looking. Anyway, the point of the piece is simply that you know the the town should uh, handle this carefully because they could have a Bigfoot in the making. Yeah. You know, they could have a Nessie in the making, and marketed correctly. Uh, they can start to reap some of the rewards that towns like Rock, uh, Roswell. Roswell and yeah. so forth, uh, reap. And, 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 you know, that's, that's really what, what the piece is about. And just from the skeptical point of view, it does bring up the fact that, you know, once these sort of stories are created, there is a huge incentive locally to, to promote them and to keep them going because it does actually drive tourism and, and has, then it has a certain you know dollar value attached to it. So certainly like, uh, you know, the, the uh, like Loch Ness, for example, that, that's he's a huge tourism there. So they, I mean, they would, they, they would are, have, are hugely motivated to promote, you know, belief in the Loch Ness monster. Right. And in, uh, this article points out that the place where these sturgeons have struck, if you will, uh, is very scenic. Mm-hmm. And it's on it's on some beautiful river uh, areas, you know, and so that it's very easy to market and draw people in. The sturgeon actually exists, though. Yeah, it's a fish. Nessie doesn't exist. Bigfoot and, doesn't. And exist. these two incidents actually happened, Evan. Yeah, it's a little different. You know, yeah. you're, you're right. Uh, I think probably the the town that most exploits its local legend is Roswell. Roswell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The museum yes. and yeah. everything. Well, that in oh. Salem, Steve. 
You're right. Well, Salem does, but that's more of a historical thing, I think. I mean, they're not. So it's a slightly different, but yeah. Jay, you're right. Salem is certainly a tourist trap. Yeah. Uh, if any of our listeners have ever visited there, it's it is a tourist yeah, trap. Yeah, there recently. Yeah, Roswell is newer. It's, it's sexier. It's more, a little more. Right, you know, and and like, there's no it. one town that can claim Bigfoot. Yeah, it's you know, true. Bigfoot's in the northwest, you know, sort of. I mean, actually, there's been sighting in all 50 and Pennsylvania, states. But. Yeah. So he's up for marketing. Right. There's up, he's up for grabs. You know, some northwestern city's got to grab Bigfoot as their as their local legend. Yeah. He's unaf- <laughs> un- currently unaffiliated. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're saying, uh, also in the piece, he goes on to say, uh, you know, Hollywood could step in and, and make a few Sturgeon movies, you know. And, uh, <laughs> Attack of the Sturgeon. Oh, yeah. yeah you'd, Attack of the 50-foot you know, Sturgeon. You could put it up there with Jaws, and, and, and certainly that <laughs> that greatly helps the process. Right. Okay, That'll right. be almost as bad as that Bigfoot movie on YouTube that Rebecca showed us yesterday. And <laughs> Night of the Demon. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> we, have, we have a local legend around here called the Melon Heads. Maybe we could uh maybe we could do the something melon heads? with that. That's true, yeah. Well, <laughs> what what melon heads? heads? They dance in the woods. Uh, they're a melon head. What? What is they're, this? <laughs> they're they're a bunch of recluse, bald headed, like inbred family that lives in the woods of uh, Fairfield County, Connecticut. Look it up. Look it up online. Do a search for melon heads. You'll come across a couple little articles and references. So maybe we're missing a potential uh, pot of gold here. I think so. You know, it, it's possible. What are we going to parade these people around and put funny suits on them? What are you? We got to find about? them first. That you can only see them at night in the <laughs> woods when it's dark and they have no hair and these big eyes and you know. Yeah, you have a lot of research to do before you start making money. Okay. Oh, I found a site. <laughs> you did? Yes. Somebody beat us to it. Melon heads. These big-headed children <laughs> have been rumored to roam the woods surrounding Windsor and King Memorial Roads in Chardon. They only come out at night, if heaven you were right. And I seem, told you. And seem to be incredibly shy, often running away from, from others who spot them. Some believe these children were victims of freak medical experiments conducted <laughs> by a Dr. Crow who injected their heads with water or chemicals. Damn you, Dr. Crow. I'll get you. This really is the stuff of P.T. Oh, Barnum, stuff, you know, man. when it he is. used to put anybody with a medical malady up on the stage and charge people a dime to go look at him, you know. The, the sideshow side The freaks, yeah. absolutely. Well, let's move on to your questions and emails. Uh, the first one comes from Joseph Van Giel in Belgium, and he writes, Dear All, he gives the, na- name, in, uh, the name of, a, of an organization which is basically the Belgium Organization Against Quackery. And he says, this is one of the oldest skeptical organizations in the world. It was founded 125 years ago. I wasn't aware that there were skeptical organizations around for that long. He says, located in the Netherlands. Last week, they have been brought to court by Mrs. Uh, the name is Sickens. Well, actually, I think it's Sickens without the N. I think he misspelled it in that one. But uh, I, I, on other sites, I, I, I could not find Sickens, but I can only find Sickes, S-I-C-K-E-S-Z, which is kind of a funny name to, for, for her to have. Either way, she sickens me. Yeah, right. <laughs> because they had nominated her as one of the top 20 biggest quacks in the world. So basically, this, this anti-quackery organization had their top 20 biggest quacks in the world list, and Mrs. Sickes was on that list. And then she sued them. So the judge decided that the organization was not allowed to name her as a quack and condemned them to publish an advertisement in all big Dutch journals to declare that she isn't a quack. This also will cost them a lot of money, and they, don't, they basically can't afford it. 
So they also I also read that they they have to pay the court costs. So the combination of the these you know these mandatory advertisements and the court costs would be essentially bankrupt this Belgium skeptical organization. I think it was about thirty thousand euros. I I believe was the price I remember. Yeah, he said thirty thousand euros. As and then he goes on to say, as all skeptic organizations, they only live from gifts, which means that this group is not able to bear these costs. The result will be the end of the organization. So please mention this topic in your great podcast. It might motivate many skeptics to support them and help to survive the situation. And he has a link. Uh, this was also written up by James Randi in the uh, his uh, online Swift journal, which I'll link to that as well. Uh, I tried to get more information about this, but unfortunately, most of them, you know, are are in Belgium, so I couldn't understand them. There wasn't much in English about this, but apparently, she is a um, her shtick is some kind of manual therapy, which relies heavily upon sort of chiropractic um, notions. You know, this is she's been doing this for quite some time. Uh, it's just it's a it's a gross miscarriage of justice. Uh, of course, I mean I think originally, according to the Swift article, the the um, she lost her her lawsuit against the skeptical organization, uh, but then it was appealed, and and the, the now the judge just decided against them. There's no higher court. I I don't know. I don't know. I think yeah. I think there may be appeals left to be made if 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 they can afford to do it, or if they are some lawyers out well, there are willing to give my, them some my free suggestion. Advice. Would be to dissolve the organization and start it up under a different name. Yeah, although it'd be a shame. Hundred twenty-five you know, years. Hundred twenty-five year history is hard up. to give up. Yeah, I understand. I understand, but I would never, never publish those articles or ads t- saying this woman's not a quack. Yeah, that can also destroy your organization. Steve, don't right. you think if they took the money instead and spent it on lawyers, it might benefit them instead of them actually doing the advertising? Well, I mean, they're 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 court ordered to do it, so I don't know. I mean, I guess they would if they if they initiated an appeal process, then they wouldn't have to do it until that was that carried through. Yeah, I'm not an expert on law in the and Jay, we don't know if there's anywhere else to go. Yeah, yeah, this could right. be the they, end of they it. They could have hit the, the ceiling. Apparently, there. apparently, the judgment turned on the definition of the word quack, and and she was saying that that implied that they were calling her a fraud. Uh, and they were and they were saying that no quackery just means that your treatments are not valid. Uh, in fact, the dictionary definition gives two definitions. The first one is just it's a, someone who who uses makes claims that are not supported by the evidence and who uses invalid treatments. And then the second one was a fraud. Uh, so the judge was basing it entirely on the second definition, not the first definition. Which which I mean, it seems kind of silly to base the judgment on that, but even if you were, the judge got it wrong, apparently, in this case. So, the judge sounds like a flaming ass. But it's terrible. I mean, it's a terrible decision. Can you imagine? You know, so that means uh, charlatans can promote any nonsense they want in the Netherlands, and if you any scientist or skeptic who stands up to point out that their that their claims are bogus can get sued uh, out of existence. I mean, it's it's a terrible terrible precedent but i think we just talked about it i don't know if it was just last week or recently about the fact that this is a big threat to skeptics because you know we're out there taking on um oftentimes con artists and charlatans and you know they are they are often fairly savvy about you know harassing us or trying to silence us with these kind of lawsuits and it's it's particularly shameful when it works you know it's sad when you see a a court of law pandered to a psychic. That's uh, terrible. Ugly, ugly. It is ugly decision. Well, Steve. So, what could we do? Honestly, what, what do you think? What could we do to help? Obviously, they're looking for donations so they could financially survive this. Again, we'll have the link to that organization 
Uh, I, I think they probably most of all need some free legal help. Although again, they would need that would need to come locally from somebody who could who has practiced law in the Netherlands. If there is an appeal available, yeah, if it's available, right. But I, I wouldn't do it. I, w- I just wouldn't. Do- I would if I asked for donations, got the thirty k, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, that's. I, I, I would point. dissolve the organization first. It's a good point. I would never, ever, under the name of my skeptical organization, publish ads saying that this freaking quack is an actual uh, therapist or doctor. Yes, or whatever the I agree. I could not do that. I cut off my right hand first. Couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I, I dissolved the organization. The next email comes from Trevor Daly in Canada, and he writes, In 1632, Galileo Galilei was accused of heresy for questioning the Aristotelian consensus model of the universe, which held that the sun and all other heavenly bodies revolve around the earth. He was threatened by the Inquisition with torture for holding these views, despite the fact that he, and anyone who troubled to do so, could see through a telescope that moons orbit the planet Jupiter. An old man, Galileo, was forced to recant and confess his error. He thereby escaped being burnt at the stake and was instead sentenced to house arrest for the rest of his life. Science and history have, of course, proven him right. Ever since, the notion of enforced consensus has been anathema to scientists. Until now. (laughs) <laughs> the dawn of the 21st century sees relentless, strident attempts to enforce consensus about global warming theory. These modern inquisitors, replete with Supreme Court ruling, rulings, brand deniers of impending apocalyptic global warming as heretics who lack blind faith in the theology of infallible computer models. Today's Galileos are being threatened with loss of their positions, credentials, and titles, foisting theories upon scientists and the public by means of verbal persuasion, elections, court orders, or intimidation is the opposite of the scientific method of determining the truth. Well, I I wanted to include that because it actually represents the the view of a lot of emails we get, and it is actually the what from from my readings uh, one of the primary points of the the global warming skeptic camp that they basically are being oppressed and that the the scientific consensus that there is global warming is being used to silence the debate prematurely, you know, to end it, to harass or oppress anyone who, who dares to say that there isn't global warming. I basically don't buy the whole thing, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, it's, it sounds an awful lot like the kind of stuff the intelligent designers are saying you know, about the evolutionists that, oh, you know, if anyone dares speak out about, about the the faith in evolution, then you get uh, you lose your tenure, you can't get published or whatever. It's it's really the exact same rhetoric as is coming from the ID camp, just global warming instead of instead of evolution. The other thing, you know, the comparison to Galileo, I know we've mentioned on this podcast more than once before that that is like a guaranteed uh, invitation to to be compared to, you know, all kinds of nonsense. The analogy to Galileo is has many flaws in it. The first of which is that, you know, Galileo existed in, in essentially a pre-scientific era. Uh, and you can't compare the, uh, the consensus of opinion that was based on dogma. The consensus that existed at the time of Galileo was not a scientific consensus. It was an authoritarian dogma. And to compare the two is to really completely miss the point. It, it also, you know, comparing one's position or oneself to either Galileo or, or Einstein or whatever, again, it just invites ridicule. So I, I wouldn't go there. So that, I think that Trevor and the people that are making this point are doing themselves a great disservice in, in making that compare, forcing that comparison. And again, it doesn't work. The bottom line is that 
there is a scientific consensus that uh, that there is man-made global warming. Now, there's always room for debate, you know, and even sometimes the minority opinion in the long run turns out to be the correct one. I think it's, it's you know, we need to continue to allow for there to be a debate. But at the same time, you know, we have to make decisions based upon the best evidence and the best conclusions that we have around right now. And right now, there is a consensus about, you know, about man-made global warming. Other emailers have said that basically playing the consensus card is making an argument from authority. And I don't think that's a legitimate point either, because we're not saying that global warming is happening because some guy says it is. That's an argument from authority. We're just saying that, you know, the world you know, community of climatologists have looked at, over the, looked at all the data. They've debated it for decades. They've done lots of research to answer all the questions that have been brought up on both sides. They've really hammered out a consensus. And when you have a broad consensus that's mature, that's been hammered out over a long time, and where all of the data has been looked at in a very transparent way, that you know, the probability of that consensus you know, accurately reflecting the, the actual evidence out there is pretty good. And what I haven't heard from the dissenters is, you know, really why we should be skeptical of that consensus. And, and when they are asked that question, they basically come out with the, all this conspiracy kind of stuff that, that Trevor is saying, which I, I don't find compelling. I just don't buy it. And it's, it's just too much like what the intelligent design people say about evolution. The next question is, where do you draw the line? Like, at what point is the evidence enough? Yeah, I know. I, I, and we're definitely, that's, there's that demarcation problem that I think we're having with the global warming issue. I think that, yeah, when it, the, there's, it is a consensus, but what does that mean? Does that mean that you can't hold a, uh, a dissenting opinion? I don't think it should ever mean that. I think I we always have to have room for other ideas. You know, science does change over time. Absolutely. I don't think you could ever close off debate. That science does not work that way. And I don't I don't think the scientific community is trying to do that. Maybe some politicians are, you know, again, when science starts to blend into politics, that's when, you know, I think people may be inappropriate. But I don't think the scientific community is doing that. So as I said, we have a long interview coming up with uh, with Oryx. So let's go to the interview now. Joining us now is the science blogger, Orek, who also goes by the first name of Dave. Dave, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Hi, everyone. Hey, Dave. And uh, as I said, Dave, uh, Dave writes a, a science blog called Respectful Insolence, which, of course, we'll have the link to, which uh, covers a lot of topics, uh, and not just straight science, but a lot of skeptical topics, too. So I guess technically you're a skeptical blogger. Um, I would like to think that. <laughs> How long have you been doing that? When did you start off the blog? It was uh, two and a half years ago now. I believe it is December of 2004. Been pretty constant since then. And has, is that the first time you got involved with uh, any kind of you know promoting the public understanding of science or any kind of media like that outside of your profession? Sort of. The way what I've had a long interest, or I've been an online presence for quite a while, but not as a blogger. Um, as far back as the late 90s, I used to be a regular on a fair number of Usenet groups, uh, mm -hmm. if you remember. Remember Usenet? You yeah, remember Usenet? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. It's ancient history now. In actuality, I guess the first serious skepticism that I got into was combating uh, 
actually, of all things, Holocaust denial. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I don't know if you know the news group Alt Revisionism. Mm-hmm. I was a regular on there for quite a few years. And then starting around oh, 2000, 2001, I started getting more interested in the whole uh, problem of uh, alternative medicine and uh, non-evidence-based therapy, shall we say. Right. And for background, I don't think I said it, you are a surgeon. And you, yes. have, you have a specialty in oncology, is that correct? Surgical oncology, I do mostly breast cancer surgery. I run a lab. I have NIH funding. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have, you're an, you have an academic appointment. Correct. I'm an associate professor of surgery. So, Dave, do you consider yourself a breast man? <laughs> <laughs> you must hear that joke like every week. Uh, I was going to say, you know. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but you did laugh, so. Yeah, I know. I was, I was being polite. Um... <laughs> so you, uh, you do cover a lot of very important topics on your blog. Uh, the Holocaust now is interesting because it's kind of outside of your professional background. How did you get interested in that? Basically, ever since I was actually a little kid, you know, like a little kid or at least a teenager, I was interested in World War II history, and I think it was sort of just an outgrowth of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I posted about this like pretty early on in my blogging career when I first discovered Holocaust denial. I basically, you know, could not believe that people were out there who denied that the Holocaust happened, you know, or or minimized it or what have you it totally blew my mind actually yeah it's pretty absurd it's yeah it's kind of like me in creationism just the notion that you know a group of people can deny such a well-established science again it is it is mind-blowing so i guess it's the same thing with holocaust denial well that was the a later reaction when i uh, you know i didn't take that much of an interest in creationism until a few years ago, and it, it was a similar sort of reaction. Yeah, and they're both denials, denialism, and they're very similar. They're both kind of the same thing, and also like HIV denial. It's a, yes, a, yes. I, I mean, they all use very, very similar logical fallacies, techniques of distorting data, um, cherry-picking evidence, all of that. And do you find that once you sort of figure out what the logical fallacies are and how these people's reasonings go astray, you could pretty much apply it to anything as long as you have a, a reasonable fund of knowledge in an area. You could then, you know, apply those logical fallacies and and deal with deal with a wider range of topics. Oh, oh yes, I mean there's I mean there's one area that I don't write about much or if at all, and that's essentially global warming. And the reason is because I don't think I know enough about it to be, you know intelligent about it so yeah yeah don't get into it it's a big pain in the ass let me tell you <laughs> let's shift a little bit to your area of expertise you know, okay. as an oncologist you write a lot about uh, cancer cures and either alternative or fake cancer cures or dubious cures and that's a huge yeah. industry obviously you know cancer is a very desperate illness and it definitely right, attracts right. a lot of a lot of quackery one treatment however that you've been writing about recently is dichloroacetate which correct in and of itself is not necessarily an illegitimate treatment. It's just the way it's been marketed. Can you give us a, a summary of that? Oh, no. I mean, I think dichloroacetate is a really interesting way of targeting cancer. I mean, basically, to make it simple, the, the idea is uh, this. There's a characteristic of cancer cells that's known as the Warburg effect. In essence, 
cancer cells, or at least a large percentage of them, utilize glucose for their metabolism preferentially. And even in the presence of oxygen, they still do anaerobic metabolism. They do glycolysis primarily, and they don't do oxidative phosphorylation. Dichloroacetate is a treatment that essentially alters that and pushes them back to a more normal metabolism. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the metabolic changes that occur in cancer and whether this is a case of the chicken or the egg. Um, It's actually kind of blurred now in that it's not entirely clear whether it's the cause or a consequence of cancer, but it is fairly clear that by normalizing cellular metabolism by either blocking enzymes that shunt the uh, metabolism back to a more quote-unquote normal uh, state that some cancers growth can be stopped and in fact this is you know this is a hot area of research. Um, Dichloroacetate it was originally used for metabolic diseases in uh, children. I think what happened is in January, a scientist at the University of Alberta named uh, Evangelos uh, Michalakis, and I hope I'm not butchering his name, basically tested this drug against a variety of cancers in rats and got promising results. The way it was spun in the media or the way it was reported okay, is, okay, this is a small molecule. It can't be patented. I mean, its use for cancer can be patented, but use patents are kind of weak. And Big Pharma is not interested in it, you know, the the dum-dum-dum, you know. um, But what's different about it as compared to, like, a lot of other drugs that might have been in this situation is that it's a small molecule that's fairly easy to synthesize. Mm -hmm. So a uh, guy named Jim Tassano in Sonora, California, decided to start, start synthesizing this stuff. He has a business of all things, a pesticide business, as far as I understand. But it means he can make chemicals. He could hire someone who could make chemicals. They set up a website, two websites. One was called buydca.com, and the other was called the dcasite.com. You know, they had the, all these discussion boards, um, and they talked about DCA and how great it was and that it was going to be the cure to cancer. And that's how it was being spun as the cure to cancer. A lot of bloggers that I normally kind of respect sort of fell into this line of thinking. You know, for instance, Digby, the Digby's blog, if you're familiar with that one, is going around, this is the drug, this is the cure to cancer that Big Pharma doesn't want you to know about. You know, it's sounding a lot like Kevin Trudeau. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, basically, the guy set up these websites, and he started selling. You know, he started making the stuff, and he started selling it, and people started discussing on the websites what was happening. You know, and meanwhile, Dr. Michalakis was obvious. It was obviously appalled by this because, contrary to what they say, this drug is not without side effects. For one thing, peripheral, it, it can produce a pretty bad peripheral neuropathy, which, uh, as a neurologist, I'm sure you know how nasty that can be. Right. And a number of other side effects that were reported. The other thing is that these people were ex- were basically taking stuff that they didn't know whether it was truly pharmaceutical grade. The DCA site claims it was pharmaceutical grade. But, you know, you have no way of knowing. You know, and here's the really disingenuous thing. They started out selling it as, quote-unquote, pet DCA. We're selling it so you can 
give your dog or your cat with cancer DCA. But they slipped up, and, and I kind of, you know, I, I caught them on this. They talked about, well, we recommend that you see your doctor first. I'm like, well, what do you got to see your doctor for if you're giving this to your pet? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and the funny thing is, after I wrote a blog piece pointing that out, they started switching things and taking that stuff out. Mm-hmm. So basically making an end run around the FDA and regulations. As far as I could tell, and I mean, to this day, he's still in operation, and I still don't understand why the FDA hasn't shut him down. Yeah. This drug has only been shown to have activity against tumors in rats. Mm-hmm. Many are the drugs that have activity against tumors in mice and rats that don't make it in human clinical trials. Maybe only 5 or 10% of such drugs actually make it Mm-hmm. You know, to some sort of marketable product, it could be the greatest thing since sliced bread. But you know, it could be this miraculous, powerful chemotherapeutic agent that we would all hope that it is. But you don't know till you do the clinical trials. That's right. It's kind of frightening the, what, what you see on that site. There are these people who are just, you know, they're they're dying of cancer, and I understand that they're desperate. And I don't know that I wouldn't be tempted to do the same thing if I were in their shoes. But, you know, they're taking a risk for what is probably no benefit. The other thing is, you know, what these people don't, what these people don't seem to understand is how we evaluate the effectiveness of cancer drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one person there who's actually fairly savvy. He was a physician who had, you know, his unfortunate guy had metastatic sarcoma. And he reported, you know, like he was on, he was on this and he was reporting that, well, his tumor grew, you know, was this size then, this size then, and this size then. And on the last one, he said there were more tumors in his lungs, and it was this size. Mm-hmm. And then some of these people were going there, okay, well, we're measuring the volume, and it looks like the growth rate is slowing down. Well, there's a, such a thing as called Gumpertian growth. Basically, all tumors do that right. with no treatment. They tend to, As they get bigger and bigger, they outgrow their blood supply, the growth fraction decreases, and they don't increase in volume as fast, and they kind of slow down with no treatment at all. Right, just the natural course of history. <laughs> and the natural, you know, and, and, and of course when it levels off completely is when you're dead. Yeah. You know, they're stoking the hope of these people saying, oh, look, it's working. These tumors are slowing down. They're not shrinking. They're slowing down. Does it mean that they're actually, that it's actually doing something? Well, maybe, but you have no idea without a control group. Mm-hmm. It's also a good example of people giving other people advice when they don't know what they're talking about. Well, well, here's, here's, here's where this pulls into skepticism. One of the big boosters of DCA is an old friend from a certain, uh, certain intelligent design website. Hey, come on. What are you getting at? What am I getting at? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> well, have you heard of Dave Scott? No. Okay, he, he's uh, over at Bill Dembski's blog, which is uh, Uncommon Descent, I believe. Mm-hmm. He was a big booster of this very early on, and he would periodically show up in some of my blog posts, you know, saying, yeah, yeah, look, it's working. And then I'd go look at it, and I'm like, no, it's not, or I can't tell if it is. You know, I'd go to the boards and see no evidence that it's working. Mm -hmm. There's only one way on Earth that you would be able to tell from this sort of uncontrolled experiment that this stuff is good against cancer. And that would be if it was so good against cancer that it basically cured everybody or it cured somebody. 
get some home runs. You know, it, it totally, yeah, a total home run. It totally shrank the tumor to nothing. And of course, we don't see any of that. And that's so we could say at this point that we're not seeing that. It's not a, it's not a dramatic cure. My, yeah, my perspective is it's, it might very well be a very useful chemotherapeutic agent, but it probably won't be useful by itself, and it probably won't be all that much more useful than a lot of other stuff that we have. There's a certain mindset in alternative medicine that chemotherapy is bad, you know, it's evil, it's poison, poison. you know, and radiation therapy is burning, and surgery is slicing and cutting. I mean, it is, but it's for a, you know, I like to think it's a little more... Precise. You know, uh, precise than that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, that's that's the common phrase from cam, you know, cancer quacks is that the standard they treatment cut, is slash burn. burn and slash burn and poison, right? So in any case, what is DCA? It's chemotherapy. Yeah, it's a drug. It is chemotherapy. It is a chemotherapeutic agent. There, that's that's what it is. But they're acting, you know, they're they're flocking to it in spite of that, you know, and they're, they're denying that that's what it is. You know, they go on about, oh, how it naturally turns the tumor cell back to a quote-unquote normal metabolism. You know, it's it's magical thinking. Yeah, just throw the word natural in there, and it just gets a, a mystique. You know, that makes it somehow seem different. There was one particularly egregious article that came from a student newspaper somewhere, but it keeps getting passed through the web, and I keep seeing it again and again. The headline was something along the lines of, they cured cancer yesterday, but no one cares, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 but you can't have it. I, I, and this one, this, this still keeps popping up. I have, I have, you know, a Google search set to, you know, dichloroacetate to see if new stuff comes up, and I keep seeing the same old stuff coming up again and again and again. And the core of the conspiracy claims is that this is a, a drug that cannot be patented. Right, so right. It's already, it's already out there, so the pharmaceutical industry can't make as much money off of it. They make about, from what I've read, about 20% off of an unpatented drug as they would off of a patented drug. You can make, you, you can make money, just not like not billions. incredible amounts yeah. of money, you know, not like Viagra type yes. money, if yeah. you know what I mean. But that leads to the notion that not only would a pharmaceutical company not invest in it, which I think is a, is, is a reasonable conclusion that, you know, well, they, well, they, well, they may yeah, not think not it's not worth their reason. investment. But then they go the extra step to say, therefore, they're going to suppress it. They're going to keep anyone else from studying it. And that's where it just gets absurd. Yeah, the, the whole thing out there is, oh, because Big Pharma isn't interested, mm-hmm. that no one's going to study it, even though there's, you know, a promising drug like this can attract grant money. Yeah. It's just, you know, obviously, it, it'll take, it takes time. It'll take a few years to get, the, you know, to figure out if this stuff actually has activity that's in a favorable side effect profile. You know, to, to determine if a drug actually has an effect on survival, you know, it'll take a few years. Yeah. yeah if you want to know what the five-year survival is, it takes five years, you know, at least. Yeah, well, well, at least, yeah, exactly. It could be or more. I, well, well, I mean, you, you can estimate it through, you know, yeah. Kaplan-Meier survival curves, but it takes a few years at least. Yeah. Dave, do you notice that uh, your cancer patients tend to go to other alternatives first, or is there any correlation between uh, your, a patient's sex and their willingness to use an alternative medicine? Do you know any stats on that? Do I know stats? Not really. I mean, from my own practice, there seem to be a lot of women who take supplements and stuff like that, but that they don't really rely on it to treat their cancer. It's not like they're telling me they don't want surgery, you know. So, and I have no problem with that, you know, as long as you're getting effective treatment, you know, 
I just need to know what you're taking in case it makes you bleed more when I operate or something like that. You know, um, one set of statistics that they throw out there, you know, it implies that like huge numbers of people use this stuff. And I'm not sure how accurate those are, you know, uh, and you're right. The, the numbers are inflated because you have to look at the details. Often, the number, the percentage of people who are using like hardcore alternative modalities, like they're trying to cure their cancer with homeopathy, mm-hmm. those are single digits, very small numbers. But then there's a few types of treatment that inflate the overall numbers, like prayer. So if some, if anyone's ever been prayed for, they consider that using alternative medicine. You know, uh, so like then practically that, everyone. Yeah, you know, I, grew, I grew up Catholic. Practically everyone I know has been prayed for. Right, but that <laughs> but like, that like makes it turn into like fifty or sixty percent or something. And they say sixty percent of people are using alternative modalities. Yeah, but it's almost all just people who have ever been prayed for, and then very very tiny numbers of the hardcore stuff that we actually think of as alternative medicine. So those numbers get artificially elevated. I know you've blogged uh, about, as I have, about certain cases where parents have tried to refuse standard cancer treatment yes. for their children in, lo- in, in exchange for alternative medicine. Uh, and, of course, that you know, brings up a lot of very thorny you know, ethical and legal uh, and moral issues. But what's the bottom line? What do you think about that? I mean, obviously, it's not a great decision, but, you know, the it's come up when the states have tried to intervene. And then you get the you get the conflict between the state trying to protect a child and the, the, the parents who are trying to exert their parental their parental rights. What do you think about those kind of situations? Yeah, you're, you're right. These are very tough. There are two people that I've primarily written about over the last year or so. They both have lymphoma. Mm hmm. Different age. Um, one of them was named Katie Wernicke, like late 2005 or so. She was 12 then. You know, developed a fairly aggressive lymphoma. Apparently got one round of chemotherapy. or you know, She went through one course of chemotherapy, and doctors thought that she needed radiation. And the parents balked, and they wanted to go for to someplace, some clinic in Kansas to get high-dose vitamin C. And, and they actually went on the lam. Yeah, they ultimately won the right to do to take her to that clinic. From what I can tell, now for her, because she was twelve and she's, I think she's fourteen now. I think it's fairly clear she's nowhere near the age where she can make the decision for herself. As much as I understand the, uh, and I'm actually wary of the state telling parents how to raise their children. I think that not providing proper medical care to a child, and and this this goes to like Christian scientists, for instance, mm-hmm. or uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, for, if a Jehovah's Witness says that you can't transfuse their child when their child's bleeding, you transfuse the child. You know, you go to yeah. court and, and do it. However, when it comes to these various, quote-unquote, alternative modalities for which there is no evidence and for some of which there's evidence that they plain don't work, for some reason the courts seem to look at those as being okay or almost equivalent to evidence-based medicine, and they're more likely to say, okay. And, and in mm-hmm. fact, that's what they did with Katie Wernicke. And in fact, it's a very sad, you know, it's very sad. Um, they have this family blog, Pray for Katie. And actually, several months ago, they posted something about follow your markers. you got to get scanned every couple months. you got to be very vigilant about your cancer. Which, And I saw that, and I was like, oh, 
she's recurred. I just knew it, you know, yeah, or yeah. She, and a couple months later they posted that, yes, she had recurred. Um, and she had some sizable tumors in her chest. But I haven't really heard anything much since then, other than that the Wernickes are suing the state of Texas. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if they'll say something along the lines of, well, they, you know, the state interfered with us going to get the treatment, you know, the vitamin C, and therefore that's why Katie is dying now. You know, it's like... Yeah, always blame every single thing else you possibly can other than yourself and your own logic. We talked about a similar case. Uh, Isabel Pritchard is a 13-year-old girl who has a brain mm-hmm. has a brain tumor. This is even worse. The, the, the parents are not opting for an alternative treatment, but there's a, a, this Russian psychic healer who who's telling them that it's not a oh, yeah, I it's not that. a tumor. It's it's, it's, it's it's the it's normal brain tissue that's not a tumor. The result of you know his healing intervention. So they're not going to get it treated at all. The second case is a young man who I believe was 15 when he was diagnosed. He's 17 now by the name of Starchild Abraham Cherigs. Now, this is a little more difficult because he's he's closer to the age of consent. You know, he's closer to being 18. Um, What happened is his story is kind of eerily similar in a way. He was diagnosed with what seemed like a fairly aggressive Hodgkin's lymphoma underwent one course of chemotherapy and did not, you know, had a lot of problems with it, you know, a lot of side effects, and decided he didn't want to do any more. And his parents supported him in this, and, and, and quite frankly, at this, the, the, you know, this is the kind of thing where the parents kind of have to step to the plate and tell, you know, get the kid to take the chemotherapy. It's like, you know, but they also were of a kind of an alternative bent, and he decided he wanted to take the Hoxie therapy, which is this concoction, and I forget exactly what it's made of. But the the, the legend is that a guy by the a guy by the name of Hoxie noticed that when his cows were out in the field or when his horses were out in the field, if they came in contact with these certain plants, that they that they if they had skin tumors, they would regress. I, I mean, it's it's typical. No, yeah, you know. No evidence, and it's kind of, you know, Science. and this is a therapy uh, that is given at this clinic in, uh, of course, Tijuana. So, I, I mean, he wanted to go there. Now, he's tougher because, like I said, he's 15, 16. He's, you know, more of an age where they, you know, the, you can think that he could decide for himself. And, and my, you know, my personal philosophy is kind of on the lines of, well, if you're an adult, you know, you can choose any sort of quackery you want. You can turn down regular therapy. That's, you know, all your choice as an adult. But if you're a kid, I think there is, you know, there is some obligation for parents or the state to make sure that you get the proper treatment. In fact, one thing about the Cherix case that's very disturbing is it ended up causing a law called Abraham's Law in Virginia, which basically says that anyone over the age of 14 um, who has a quote-unquote life-threatening condition can refuse treatment or can choose whatever their treatment is or whatever they want. Um, In essence, if you're over the age of 14 in Virginia and have a life-threatening condition, you know, it's open season for quackery there. Everyone looks at it completely from the point of view of the right of the patient to choose their treatment, but... That doesn't mean that there, that uh, any provider should have the right 
to to provide any treatment that they want. Uh, ex- yeah, excellent point. That's right. <laughs> Somebody should not have the right to sell a fraudulent therapy, a therapy which has been shown to be unsafe or ineffective, and to make claims about it, no matter how implied or inferential they are. Uh, getting back to the anti-vaccination thing, though, I want to use that to segue into just to the recent autism omnibus, the, the mercury causing autism. Yes, yes. <laughs> Briefly, what's the update with the with the court trial that's going on now? Okay, it's finished its first week, and now we're well into the second week. The way the way the autism omnibus works is there are forty eight hundred parent sets of parents who have sued or filed for compensation under the vaccine injury compensation program. They're going through a group of test cases, you know, and. By t- these test cases, they're sup- they're picking, I guess, their best cases, or where they think they have the best evidence that vaccines injured, you know, injured the child and caused their autism. This first case so far hasn't gone well. Um, one of the first witnesses, um, I believe his name is pronounced Doctor Apotian, basically on the stand last week, in essence, admitted that he sort of, he made up his hypothesis like three weeks before. You know, there was like no, yeah. si- no, no, nothing published. I, I mean, basically, if you look at the transcripts for the first week, which is all the plaintiff's witnesses, I, I mean, there's some howlers in there. They're, they're <laughs> just making stuff up. Yeah, they're, they're making the stuff up yeah. as they go along. Going, going back real quick, um, you know, the concept that mercury injury causes autism, uh, which is not supported by science. I mean, yes, mercury, as I think you pointed out the other day, mercury is a neurotoxin, but the question is, at the doses that it's given in vaccines, can it cause autism or mm-hmm. other neurologic injury? And there's basically no evidence that it does. Right. And, and again, this is a magnet for quackery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now this week... Dr. Fonbon, he's done a number of studies. Yeah. He basically ripped apart the plaintiff's side so far. The only thing they could touch him on is that he's taken pharmaceutical money in the past, so they start trying to rip him for a conflict of interest. But the way I, the way I look at it is, well, okay, if the conflict of interest is stated clearly and not hidden, that's one condition. The other condition, I look at it, I'm like, okay, they have, there may be a conflict of interest there. I'll be a little more skeptical about the data. But in the end, the data has to stand on its own. It's the right. data, not the person. But they're, they're quick to dismiss scientists for any tenuous link. And they will make a leap from that as to like, you know, if you've ever gotten pharmaceutical money ever, right, right, that right. you're actually in their pocket and you're, you're adulterating your research or you're basically working for the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, that's, and that's, that's a huge leap to make. Uh, did, did you have a chance yet, by the way, to read RFK Jr.'s recent article in the Huffington Post? I blogged about it today. I don't know if you had a chance stay, to read it. Oh, stay tuned. It's, I've, I've already written a response. It's going up tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. yeah but I saw your response. I, I liked it. You're, you're nicer than I was. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are blog buddies, aren't you? We are. We are blog buddies. <laughs> but but act, actually, uh, you should read, if, if you want a really snarky response, you should go over to Kevin Leach's blog. He he also wrote about it. He he happens to have a daughter with autism, and he's yeah. very much into the skeptical, you know, he's very much against this stuff, you know, the, the all, nonsense, the, all this yeah. conspiracy mongering and nonsense. His post is precious. <laughs> You'll have to read it. Hey, Dave, I noticed... I noticed that you blogged about uh, 
about Scientology today. Yeah, and I know you guys have talked about yeah. it before on the podcast. It's Jay's favorite topic. It's just so stupid. Yeah, I know. It's a freak show on the dance floor. I mean, Scientology is just a, a train wreck. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I wrote about John Travolta because he basically blamed the uh, Virginia Tech rampage on psychiatric drugs. Uh, oh, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, I, I always sort of thought, okay, John, you know, Scientologists go, John Travolta's kind of low-key. He does doesn't really talk about his religion much. He's kind of amiable. Eh, you know, he doesn't bother me. But, but then I saw this, and I'm like, oh, great. He's right up there with he is. Tom Cruise. He's just... They're making him step up now. What I said about it is like, okay, you got to remember this. Even if, 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 if a person is a truly committed Scientologist, no matter how amiable or reasonable they, they seem on the surface... You look underneath the surface; they're as crazy as Tom Cruise. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. If you're buying into that stuff, Zenu. Yeah. The whole Zenu stuff. Yeah, all the way they've down. They drank I mean, the Kool Aid. Yeah. Yeah, they drank the Kool Aid. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> In huge quantities, gallons of it. Dave, a quick question for you about the potential future of cancer therapies, maybe the next 5 to 15 years. One of the good things about cancer therapy over the last you know, few decades is it's been moving away from more radical to less radical. You know, for instance, back in the 70s, every woman with breast cancer got a mastectomy. You know, a couple decades before that, they all got a radical mastectomy, which is really deforming. It involved taking the underlying muscle as well. Yeah. Now they all get, you know, and they all got all their lymph nodes removed under the arm. Now, I've never even seen a radical mastectomy. Most women these days get a lumpectomy, and uh, only a sampling of the lymph nodes instead of taking all of them. With, uh, and then they get radiation. What, the other yeah. big theme in cancer these days is moving towards more targeted therapies based on the molecular alterations in the cancer that you're treating. How much these will pan out is hard to say. I mean, you may have heard of Herceptin. Mm -hmm. That's a targeted yeah. therapy against uh, a certain receptor that breast cancer, you know, that some breast cancers express. There's anti-angiogenic therapy, which is my area of interest, you know, attacking the blood vessels that feed tumors. There are other targeted therapies based on other specific molecular alterations. You know, the, the idea being, you know, hopefully less toxicity, but still equal tumor control. Right. right. And, and I mean, I think that tends to be where things are going now. The, you know, cancer. There's no other way to put it. Cancer is a bitch. It's like really, really tough, and it's not just one disease. There's that, that's another thing that yeah. alternative medicine really bugs me on is they all refer to it as cancer, a cure for cancer. Well, no, there is no cure for cancer. There may be a cure for a cancer, right? but there's no cure for cancer. Hey, Dave, out of all the cancers out there, overall, what's our cure for cancer rate if you were to average it out? Overall, it's probably, and I'm not 100% sure this is right, but it, it's around on the order of, uh, you know, in the 50% range, you know, depending. But that's like everything. You're mixing like pancreatic cancer yeah. with, you know, nastiness of, you know, nasties. Uh, or you're mixing breast cancer, which is very curable, especially in the early stages with uh, esophageal cancer, which is, you know, not so, you know, very difficult to treat and cure. So there's probably not going to be one cure for cancer. It's going to be a, a lot of no, little, no. little baby I, I, steps, baby steps, and just slowly, slowly, slowly we'll, we'll gain ground. Like over slowly it. weed it out, right? We, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could say that I thought it would happen in my lifetime, but probably not. <laughs> really? Really? You don't, not even in, you know, 30, 30 years we won't have some 
knock down some 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 big cancers out there? Well, I think no. I think we'll make progress. I just don't. You know, I don't think there'll be any magical or even you know. I don't think there will be a cure for most cancers in my lifetime. I wish I could say that wasn't true, but uh, it's just a tough. It's not just one disease; it's many diseases, and it's a very tough opponent. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the Skeptics. All right, thanks. It was a lot of thanks, Dave. All right, thanks a lot. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with. Three science news items or facts, two are genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my skeptics and you at home to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready? Yes, ready. Yes. Okay. Item number one. In a recent publication, researchers described the process for making a liquid telescope on the moon. Item number two. Geophysicists have used magnetic eruptions on the sun to image deep layers of the earth. And item number three, biologists have discovered that certain species of electric eel use their electrical discharges to communicate complex information, such as the precise location of prey. Evan, you go first. The first one was, researchers described the process for making a liquid telescope on the moon. Liquid telescope. Okay, I can believe that. Number two was geophysics used magnetic eruptions on the sun to image deep layers of the earth. Boy, I really don't understand how that's possible. And the third one was biologists have discovered that certain species of electric eel use their electric discharge to commun- communicate complex information such as the precise location of prey. Is that communication amongst other electric eels? Yes. Yeah, I thought that was implied. Yeah. Yeah, I figured. Uh, that sounds right. I'll say that... Um, well, I'll say the eel one actually is uh, fiction. I think there's okay. Some, I, think the, I think you're... Throwing a curve in there somewhere. Think there's something fishy about it? <laughs> you total turd. Oh. <laughs> Perry? The eel one sounds uh, perfectly fine to me. I mean, if bees can dance, eels can shock. The first one, sure, liquid telescope on the moon. Why would you need a liquid telescope <laughs> on the moon? And the last one, or the middle one, uh, you know, that's the one that, uh, you know, I am ignorant as to how that process could work. Therefore, I will choose it. That one is fiction. Number two, uh, geophysicists using magnetic eruptions to image deep layers on the Earth. Okay, Jay. You're doing it again, Steve. You're very good. The eel, uh, the eel, is, in particular, the eel uh, being able to locate their prey using uh, electrical discharge. You're doing the your... No, not to locate the prey, to communicate information about. Oh, as like communication, like the location of the prey. Yeah, yeah. So it's just the communication. Okay, all right. That one sounds very reasonable to me. Uh, uh, the the liquid telescope. My first question is, why does it have to be liquid? And and liquid seems to be uh, difficult to handle on the moon because lack of pressure and atmosphere and all that. Would, but that does sound doesn't sound as bad as the second. The second one. Something's funny about the second one to me. The uh, geophysicist with the magnetic eruptions on the sun. I'm going to go with number two. Okay, Bob. All right, the liquid telescope on the moon. Uh, I don't know if you've got an ice telescope up north one. I'd have a liquid telescope on the moon. I don't have a it's problem down with south, that. actually. South, north. It's a pole. Um, That's true. He's right. Let's see. Um, geophysicists have used magnetic eruptions on the sun to image deep layers of the Earth. I can kind of see that perhaps charged particles from the sun 
Uh, some small percentage of them can actually travel through the Earth, which can be detected, which might uh, reveal some detail about um, the deep layers of the Earth. That's conceivable. Now, the uh, the electric eel using electrical discharges to communicate complex information. That would be interesting. I just don't see electric eels as being kind of like team players. I don't think they give a crap about communicating anything to other electric eels. Um, if yeah. they, if other electric eels can somehow interpret it, that that's another thing. I don't think it's an intentional communication. Did you mean to imply it was intentional? Yes. So that, I'm not buying that. You never saw the old cartoons, Bob, where the eel would 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 change his shape and it would say, "Eat it, Joe's." Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. <laughs> all right. So I'm gonna so go with that guys, one. You guys all buy the liquid telescope on the moon. Is that what you're telling me? I'm not buying that. Well, yeah. It's I mean, got to be millions expensive. of dollars. Absolutely. <laughs> and that one is, in fact, science. <laughs> yeah. Jay, I told science. you about that one. You did. Thank you, Bobby. The concept's really cool. Now, you, mm. use a, use a, you can use a liquid to make, instead of a, a glass lens, right, or, or collector. Right. Mm-hmm. And the advantage is that if you, you know, use a liquid and you spin it, the force of the spinning will form it into right. a perfectly smooth parabolic shape. It's not necessarily heavy. It's true. It's not heavy, and um, it could be huge. That's right. That's right. It's actually a really neat concept. They're talking 10 to 100 meters, which would make it 1,000 times more sensitive than than anything we have. Like That's Hubble awesome. 1,000 times more sensitive. Bob, how much do they have to spend on that? Billions. Um, I don't know. <laughs> billions or billions. <laughs> I don't know. But it's been, you know, but the, the theoretical problem has been finding a liquid that could hold up in the harsh right. environment of the moon. Yes, they did. And that's the breakthrough, is that they figured out a way. This is the international team, including researcher Armano Bora from the University at Laval Center for Optics, Photonics, and Laser. And they, they basically figured out how to make a liquid uh, that, could, that will fit the bill, that, that could theoretically be used to, to make this kind of a telescope on the moon. Of course, having it on the moon is an advantage because there's no atmosphere. So it's a synthetic liquid. They, they coated an ionic liquid with silver by vaporizing it in a vacuum. That that was the breakthrough. Hmm. Oh, that explains everything. I should have thought to do that. So Jay, Jay, however much that thing weighs, you multiply ten thousand dollars per pound, and that's a, that's the yeah. minimum it's going to cost. Yeah, but it's one sixth the weight because it's on the moon. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it's got to get off it, the earth. It's in our gravity well. So now, uh, Jay and Perry think that the magnetic eruptions are fake, and Bob and Evan think that the electric eel is fake. So is it the Electricity or magnetism? Which one is the fake this week? Come on, we all know magnets are BS. Let's go to number <laughs> the third one, the electric eel. Biologists Ooh. have discovered that certain species of electric eel use their electrical discharges to communicate complex information, such as the precise location of prey. And that one is fiction. Yahoo! Yeah! That one is fiction. Good work, boys. High five, Bob. Oh, my streak is intact. The, the real study showed that electric eels do use their electrical discharges in courtship. Uh, so the males and females do kind of like a song back and forth to each other with their electrical discharges, but they're not communicating complex information. That part was made Damn. up. Damn. See, because I, I remember reading that one. You did it yeah, again, Steve. Very I did. good. I'm sorry. Uh, and that means that geophysicists have used magnetic eruptions on the sun to image deep layers of the Earth is science, and this is also cool. Bob, you got this one pretty much right on the nose, that they're using these um, earthquakes on the sun, not earthquakes, just magnetic quakes on the sun, which uh, give pulses of, of discharges. And they can, u- they can measure that over time. 
uh, and it does get it does penetrate into the deeper layers of the Earth, and they can use that basically as a as a method of of imaging deep down into the Earth. And what what they found using this technique was that there is a a large layer of molten mobile rock beneath Arizona, basically. This was done by Arizona geophysicist Daniel Toffelmeyer and James Tisperzi. So they, they detected a molten layer with a comparatively new and overlooked technique for explaining the deep earth that uses magnetic eruptions on the sun. Pretty cool. Cool. So good work, Bob and Evan. Oh, thanks, Doctor. Evan, tell us the answer to last week's puzzle. Do you want to maybe to repeat the yes. puzzle itself? Yes. yes it's okay. Assumed. I notably lurk on the fringes of physics. I rely on people's ignorance of water's specific capacity. I was the world's only teacher of my practice from 1977 to 1984. I don't spend much time doing what I do. I keep my momentum, yet try to stay uneven. And if those dollars are burning a hole in your pocket, I can teach you to attain virtually any goal. <laughs> Who am I? Is it Wink Martindale? No. <laughs> That's a good guess. Ever heard of a gentleman named Tolly Birkin? Uh, that, that rings he, a bell. <laughs> Come on, we got to know who Tolly Birkin is. He is the uh, self-proclaimed creator of the firewalking movement. A firewalker. Uh, so he's got sweaty feet. He is a professional firewalker. Well, that, that's been done this, for... For millennia, yeah. though. According to him, he's been, research, he's been researching firewalking since 1977 and is considered to be the foremost authority on the subject. Listen to what he says, says here. This is from his, we- this is from his website. Uh, knowing the secrets behind firewalking can improve your life. Uh, knowing how it works can bring better health and increased personal power. Why? Because firewalking demonstrates how your thoughts impact everything else in your life. Uh, firewalkers are instructed to pay co- close attention to their thoughts, since those very thoughts are the way in which we create our own realities. Oh, man. Wait a minute. They stole this from the secret. Yeah, this is the secret. Positive thinkers literally live in a different chemical environment than negative thinkers. Oh, man. A different chemical environment. A different chemical environment. That now, can I legally call that gobbledygook? Uh, you could call this guy a quack, I think, <laughs> and you'll be quite quite. It's safe. no secret that he's an ass. <laughs> what nonsense. So he researched yeah. this. So did he ever have somebody walk over the hot coals thinking, I'm walking on hot burning coals? <laughs> and does that, does that matter? Do they burn their feet if they, if they think that? Our good friend Dr. Andrew Weil says, Today we see people of all sorts learning to walk over beds of glowing coals after a few hours' participation in seminars taught by Tal. Yeah, uh, Andrew ma- Weil. Man, I love it when, when one quack endorses a, a completely unrelated <laughs> form of quackery. <laughs> It warms my heart, you know. So now, James Mapes, famous uh, 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 hypnotist, you probably heard of him. Tolly changed my definition of impossible forever. Mm-hmm. And just for the record, firewalking is possible because of physics, not because right. of any mental woo-woo. Ha- tell them to look up heat capacity and thermal conductivity, and I, I will believe, I will believe all that claptrap when I see somebody firewalking on Infidel. molten metal. Then yeah. I will believe it. On red hot steel, <laughs> yeah. Then I'll right, leave. right. Yeah, it doesn't have to be molten. Just red hot. Just red hot. That's the first time steel has ever burned feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Evan, give us a new puzzle. Give us a new puzzle. All right, so new puzzle is as follows. This one is a uh, a logic puzzle, another sequence puzzle. So here we go. Identify the sixth number in this sequence. I'm going to give you the first five. You have to identify the sixth. 
uh, 0 .420, what's the sixth number in the sequence? So wrap your mind around that, and We, we good call luck, this everyone. Formula 409. <laughs> Perry, do you have a quote to end this, uh, end this show for us? This day, Bach? Yes, I do. The quote is as follows. The path of sound credence is through the thick forest of skepticism. That was George Jean Nathan, uh, 1882 to 1958, an American journalist, essayist, and editor of some note. Thank you, Perry. Excellent. Fans love you, man. Don't thank me. Nice quote. Thank George Jean Nathan. Thank you, George. Thank you all for joining me once again. It was, it was, the pleasure is totally ours, Steve. And Steve, have a great vacation. Good episode. Week. Good episodes. You, you may have noticed, those who are paying attention, that um, we actually recorded two shows in a row, hence the dates on, on these episodes, because I'm going to be in the, the backwoods of Cumberland, Maryland, where we don't have fancy things like internet access. Hunting so Bigfoot. Yes, yeah, so I won't be able to, uh, to record a show next week which is this week when this this episode's coming up so so next week is this week you know what's going to happen something amazing is going to happen some black hole some black hole is going to pass near the earth and we're not going to talk about it next week right if a black hole passes near the earth i don't think anybody's going to be talking well, about it well if it's far enough away it turns out how big it is yeah and how close yeah i mean if the uh, the universe can collapse into a quantum vacuum and we won't be here to talk about it it's true oh man well, until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problems. And this delay.